Hey everyone, Natalie here from The Pendulum's Path. If you need guidance, direction, spiritual connection, or more, then listen up. I have worked as a psychic and a medium for over three years, connecting people from all over the world with their loved ones in spirit, giving them insight and guidance into their current situations, the past healings that need to be worked on, and what it is they need to know today in order to have a better future. It would be my absolute honor if you would visit my website at www.thependulumspath.com. I also offer emailed readings for those with busy schedules too. Also, for you goblins who subscribe to the Esoteric Book Club, I have a special coupon code just for you. Enter the code STAYWEIRD to get $5 off of any order of $25 or more. Hope to see you there. Hi, I'm Jimmy Coe. And I'm Stephen Hawk. And we're the host of the Cosmic Sponge Podcast, where we explore the unknown from UFOs and cryptids to unexplained disappearances and ancient mysteries. If you're looking for strange stories that will keep you on the edge of your seat, jump on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or search for Cosmic Sponge on your favorite listening platform. Head on over to our website at www.cosmicsponge.com to get access to all of our content, including a full list of platforms where you can enjoy the show. You're listening to the Esoteric News Briefs, your source for the paranormal, the mysterious, and the strange. Welcome back, Goblins! I'm your host, Jason, and you're listening to the Esoteric News Briefs, Episode 3.8, Ancestral Ghost Genomes. But first, I want to take a moment to thank the members of the Esoteric Archive, specifically Annie Kay, Soul Rising Studios, and Grand Inquisitor Samantha. If you would like to hear your name at the beginning of every single episode, join the Esoteric Archive at patreon.com forward slash esoteric book club. Every member gets early access to episodes, and those pledging $3 or more get extended episodes. Your contributions help to pay server costs, purchase reading materials, and provides nourishment for the bioluminescent alien fungus living in my bathroom closet. I really just wish it would stop calling me Seymour. I've also begun offering Esoteric Book Club t-shirts through the merchandise tab on my website. These shirts are designed by yours truly, screen printed by T Public, and shipped via Extra Dimensional Squid Person. Designs include the Esoteric Book Club logo, the Esoteric News Briefs Radio Tower, and a few others like Patty from the Patterson-Gimlin film, The Green Man, and a retro Batman-inspired Mothman. I'll post a link in the show notes, because if you're anything like me, you will have totally forgotten about the shirts by the end of the show. You also have one week left to order from Folk Hero Coffee Company using the discount code ESOTERIC22 to get 10% off your total. These custom roasted blends are named for West Virginia folk heroes such as Sid Hatfield, Mother Jones, and everyone's favorite cryptid, the Mothman. To get yours, go to FolkHeroCoffee.com and use the coupon code ESOTERIC22 at checkout. Both link and code will be posted in the show notes. But enough about all that. You're here for the news. So without further delay, 
Let's get weird. We all have at least one crazy relative who distrusts the banking industry so much that they bury their money in old coffee cans or mason jars, right? No? Well, if not, chances are you're that crazy relative. Anyway, let this article serve as a reminder to go check on your stash in the morning. In 2019, homeowners in North Yorkshire, England, decided to do a bit of remodeling on their 18th century home. After 300 years, it was due a bit of work. While repairing the kitchen floor, they found a small, salt-glazed earthenware cup, described as being about the size of a soda can. That in itself is pretty cool, considering that most people find old boots or dead cats hidden in their historic homes. However, when they moved the cup, they noticed that it was a bit heavier than they expected. And it jingled. Tucked away in the bottom of this clay mug was 260 gold coins, with dates ranging between 1610 and 1727. The estimated value of this stash, which contains mostly coins in 50 and 100 pound denominations, is roughly $300,000. What makes this find even more unique is that based on the dates of the coins and the history of the house, historians can comfortably guess at who hid the coins within the floorboards. At that time, England had recently switched over to the banknote, printed paper money, and established the Bank of England. This was still a novel concept and was clearly met with hefty skepticism by Joseph and Sarah Fernley Meisters, the home's original inhabitants. Clearly, they were not sold on the idea of paper money and felt that the only currency of value was cold hard cash. The government transparency advocacy group known as the Black Vault filed a Freedom of Information Act request with the U.S. Navy in April of 2020. This was in direct response to the release of three, now infamous, videos of UAP filmed by Navy pilots. Two years later, their request was predictably denied. But denied in a way that confirms that the Navy has more videos in its archives. The Navy responded, saying, quote, The release of this information will harm national security as it may provide adversaries valuable information regarding Department of Defense slash Navy operations, vulnerabilities, and or capabilities, end quote. They further elaborated that no portion of the videos can be segregated for release. While it's clear that there are more UFO videos in the Navy archives, it's unclear how many there may be. Then again, there is still a question whether or not we've been visited by extraterrestrials. For many astrophysicists, the answer is a resounding no. In fact, many refer to the Fermi Paradox, a theory in direct response to the Drake Equation, which basically says that if there were intelligent life out there, it would have found us by now. 
In a new paper accepted for publication by the Astrophysical Journal, it is proposed that perhaps our sun isn't ideal for galactic colonization. I can hear some of you out there heaving a collective sigh of relief. The authors of the paper propose that if a civilization had the technological capability to travel between solar systems and the capability to colonize said solar systems, they would likely choose a star with a longer potential lifespan. This is because interstellar colonization would be a massive drain on both time and resources. If a civilization had the means and desire, it would want its colonies to last as long as physically possible. It may be difficult for us to comprehend the difference between the stellar lifespan that lasts billions of years versus one that lasts trillions of years, but to a civilization that can traverse galaxies, the difference may be quite important. Because of this, the paper suggests that interstellar civilizations would likely seek out habitable planets around K or M class dwarf stars, also known as low-mass stars. Commonly known as red dwarfs, these stars provide the stability and longevity necessary for interstellar colonization. If a civilization were to focus only on star systems with just these types of stars, they would be able to spread across the galaxy at a much quicker rate than previously thought. Granted, this also means that they wouldn't come anywhere near our own G-class star. We run a little bit too hot, and we're a bit too unstable. Seems rather fitting for the human race, doesn't it? Considering that K and M-class stars cover 88% of all the known stars in the universe, why would anyone come here when they can literally go anywhere else and find better real estate? Conversely, aliens may not even realize that there's intelligent life on Earth. As far as we know, there hasn't been another form of sentient life on this planet, let alone one using complex communication technology. If a planet isn't producing signals, chances are there's no one there to receive signals in return. So why would aliens even try to contact us? Yes, we have been using radio waves since the 1930s, but the universe is big. Those first few signals have only traveled about 25 light years, and even then, they're probably pretty garbled, assuming that they can even be recognized as communication in the first place. Because it takes an equal amount of time for an alien response to reach Earth, we could only expect callbacks from within 50 light years. In the scope of the entire universe, that distance is virtually nothing. So unless intelligent life is vastly more common than we first suspected, our early radio signals are about as effective as a ringing telephone on an empty street corner. I have spoken about the asteroid Ryugu several times on this show. About a year ago, the U.S. and Japan both sent probes to the asteroid so that they could collect samples. 
Since that time, both probes landed, or landed as best they could considering that the asteroid is about as stable as the contents of a ball pit, collected samples, and returned. I have not yet seen a report from NASA, but Japan is releasing some astounding finds. The first test that Japanese scientists performed examined the different isotopes of oxygen-16 found within the asteroid. This would give them an idea of the conditions in which Ryugu formed. Based on ice crystal formation, it was determined that it formed in the far reaches of our solar system. Oddly enough, there were also minerals found within that seemed to have come from parts closer to the sun. It's theorized that Ryugu picked up some mineral hitchhikers that were on their way out of the solar system. The most astounding find from the Ryugu samples so far is the presence of minerals that predate the formation of our own sun. Known as pre-solar silicates, these minerals suggest that parts of Ryugu are billions of years old. Tests are still ongoing, and I will keep you informed of updates as they are released. An eight-year-old boy in India recently had a terrifying ordeal with a cobra. The snake had coiled around his arm and eventually bit the boy. The child tried to shake the snake off, but when the serpent didn't budge, the boy retaliated by biting the snake back. Twice. After being rushed to the hospital for antivenom, it was determined that the cobra bite was a dry bite, one that doesn't inject venom, and the boy lived. The cobra, though, was not so lucky. It had succumbed to its wounds soon after the attack. Geneticists have recently used artificial intelligence to break down the human genome to determine Generally, what percentage of modern human is Homo sapien, Neanderthal, and Denisovan? What they discovered was a bit unnerving, though. When Neanderthal and Denisovan DNA was removed from the analysis of our genome, it was found that there was still a ghost population of humanoids in our ancestry that was not Homo sapien. Further analysis suggests that this ghost species may have been an early divergence from Denisovans, possibly a hybrid with early Neanderthals. Outside of these strands of ghost DNA, no physical evidence has yet been found for this fourth ancestor of modern man. Archaeologists in Poland reopened a dig site within Tunnelwielki Cave after re-examining artifacts found 50 years ago. Initially, the site was dated to the Middle Paleolithic, or roughly 40,000 years ago. But looking at the tools compared to the animal remains found had modern scientists scratching their heads. After reopening the dig site and continuing excavations into lower layers of the cave floor, more evidence was uncovered. Rudimentary stone tools rested in the same layer as animal remains, such as the European jaguar, the Mosbach wolf, and Denninger's bear. 
animals that existed a half million years ago. Only two other sites in Poland show human habitation during this time period, both of which are open-air sites. Quote, We were surprised that half a million years ago people in this area stayed in caves, because those were not the best places to camp, said archaeologist Malgorzata Kot. Scientists hope to find the remains of human ancestors Homo heidelbergensis as they continue their excavations in this area. A recently released scholarly paper indicates that belief in witchcraft is related to failing social programs and that Russia is one of the worst. The idea is simple. Countries with systemic failures in, or complete lack of, social safety nets tend to have citizens that rely upon, or conversely blame, their hardships on sorcery. Places where natural disasters, corrupt courts, or institutionalized bigotry prevail are more likely to be havens for witches, or at least supposed witches. These countries tend to more often than not place blame on marginalized individuals under the guise of witchcraft. So how bad is Russia? Globally, of the countries surveyed, there is about a 40% belief margin, while in Russia, it's well over 50%. In the United States, the number is around 16%, which seems low, but if you think about it, that's still about one in every six people. While the headline is clearly targeting Russia as clickbait, my takeaway is that global belief in witchcraft is still pretty high, even in the more, quote, civilized countries. If the paper's thesis is correct and witchcraft is an indicator of failing social safety nets, the United States might want to re-examine its current social policies. Consider it a magical canary in a metaphysical coal mine. If that bird dies, you've got big problems. Then again, quote, alternative religions are on the rise in the Western world, and witchcraft is at its forefront. Scientist Vic Tandy was working alone in his lab late one night when he noticed that things were getting uncomfortably spooky. He initially blamed EMF, or electromagnetic frequencies, which have been reported to cause paranoia. The problem was, there was no machinery running in the lab that night. He tried to ignore it and continue his work, but when he noticed a gray shadowy figure watching him out of the corner of his eye, he quickly packed up and went home for the evening. The next day, Tandy came into work with his fencing gear. He had to repair the blade on his weapon, you see. It's not said whether it was a foil, epee, or saber, but really, it's not that important to the story. He mounted the new blade into a tabletop vise so he could install a new hilt when he noticed that the tip of the blade was vibrating wildly. He looked around, and nothing was shaking the table, and there wasn't a draft that would blow hard enough to flex a fencing blade. So what was causing it? After some experimentation, Tandy discovered that a newly installed fan system 
was causing subsonic vibrations, commonly known as infrasound. It just so happened that these particular vibrations were produced at the same wavelength as the blade, causing it to wiggle in response. That wavelength was 19 Hz, a level too low for us to hear, but certainly strong enough for us to feel. Sort of. The wavelength at which an object is affected by sound is known as its resonant frequency. In the example above, the fencing blade's resonant frequency was 19 Hz. It turns out that a large portion of the human body also has a resonant frequency of 19 Hz. While it wouldn't make us noticeably vibrate, it would cause us unease, which could result in some startling physiological responses. Responses that mimic anxiety, paranoia, the fight-or-flight response, or, as in Tandy's case, hallucinations. Further studies showed that some haunted locations, at least in Scotland, had levels of infrasound 200 times higher than the baseline. Because of this association with haunted locations, infrasound produced at the 19 Hz level is now commonly known as the haunted frequency. A pair of rather strange Viking grave sites was recently uncovered in Sweden. The site housed the cremated remains of about a hundred individuals, but a pair of side-by-side -side graves had swords driven into the earth above them. Forcefully so. Looking at the contents of the graves, it seems that the bodies were cremated before being interred. They were then surrounded by various items, and finally buried. At which point someone used a heavy object to hammer a pair of swords 16 inches into the packed soil above each gravesite. This action shattered the blades of both, ensuring that they couldn't be looted. But we don't know why. So far, archaeologists suggest that it may have to do with a cult of Odin, but they really can't say with any certainty. At this point, it's just an educated guess. In other locations, there are grave sites with weapons hammered into the ground above the deceased, and it was assumed that this was done to prevent them from rising from the dead. Granted, in those instances, the weapons used were spears or arrows, which are far less expensive. Not only that, these two individuals were cremated, so the idea of them coming back in a physical form is rather unlikely. It's hoped that further analysis of the grave will yield more evidence to this bizarre burial practice. It seems impossible, but science has created a material stronger than graphene. This material is a metallic alloy comprised of equal parts chromium, cobalt, and nickel. But how tough is it? The durability of objects is rated in megapascals per meter. Graphene registers at 4 megapascals per meter. To put that in perspective, aluminum registers at about 35 megapascals. This doesn't necessarily mean that aluminum is stronger than graphene, it just means that it's more durable. It will deform and warp, 
giving it a bit more time before it mechanically fails. Graphene is basically indestructible. Until suddenly, it's not, at which point it shatters. This new alloy is registered at a whopping 450 to 500 megapascals. As if that weren't enough, it actually becomes stronger at lower temperatures, which is the opposite of almost all known materials. In fact, it seems to actually increase in strength the lower that the temperature goes. Obviously, this has a wide array of uses. For example, storage of highly explosive fuels such as hydrogen, or for structures that exist in extreme environments, like the vacuum of space. The reason this material withstands damage so well is because on an atomic level, when exposed to stress, individual atoms can dislocate and slide without completely separating from the main structure. This allows the material to extend and deform at an extraordinary rate well before it breaks. While this sounds like a miracle material, there's one major hurdle preventing mass production. The cost of nickel and cobalt are prohibitively high at this moment. I'm sure that most of you are aware that the movie The Exorcist and its originating book were based on a real case. The real case was slightly different in that it involved a teenage boy instead of a young girl. It all began in Cottage City, Maryland in 1949. Initially, the case seemed like a standard poltergeist manifestation. The sound of scratching in the walls, objects moving on their own accord, even the young man's bed moved. Eventually, things escalated. The boy would be thrown from chairs every time he attempted to rest. Tables would flip over. Furniture would move when no one was looking. It was so bad that the floors were even scarred from the shifting of heavy furniture. The family had recently lost the boy's Aunt Tilly, who was a spiritualist that taught him how to communicate using a Ouija board. The family feared that his metaphysical dabblings may have been the source of his problems. Just to be sure, though, they had him tested by doctors and psychologists who, as you would have guessed, found absolutely nothing wrong. By the time priests became involved, the boy's condition had worsened. He began to go into a trance during early exorcisms. The bed would shake, violent, rhythmic scratchings could be heard from within the walls, and objects were thrown or manipulated without visible means. There was discussion between the priest and the family, deciding whether or not he should be taken to St. Louis for treatment. As if on command, scratches appeared on the boy's chest. The word, Louis, was clearly visible. The only question now was when should they leave and how long would they be there? Again, scratches appeared on the boy's skin. First the word Saturday, followed by three and a half weeks. Now I could see skeptics saying that scratches could very easily appear to be simple words by those already looking for a sign. 
but entire phrases? That goes well beyond the realm of coincidence. Eventually, he was taken to the Alexian Brothers Hospital, where he was treated with the full rites of exorcism. For days, he thrashed, screamed, cursed, and eventually berated priests in Latin. Several weeks later, after supposedly having a vision of St. Michael standing over him with a flaming sword, the boy recovered. The story made national headlines, eventually being read by young William Peter Blatty, who went on to author the infamous novel. After the incident, though, the boy faded into obscurity. He and his family were recorded only in pseudonyms or by initials, so his identity remained a mystery. At least it did, until May of 2020, when David Hunkeller, the possessed boy from exorcist fame, passed away at the age of 84. So what happened to David after the exorcism? Well, it turns out that he went on to work for NASA for roughly 40 years. In fact, he held a patent for heat shielding that allowed the Apollo missions to move forward, contributing to man's landing on the surface of the moon. While he later admitted that he was never really possessed and that, in his own words, he was just a bad boy, he still chose to leave home every Halloween. It seems that he was terrified that someone would eventually identify him and harass him on All Hallows' Eve. Yet no one ever really did. It is reported by Hunkeller's, quote, female companion of 29 years, that while he was on his deathbed, a priest came to the house to administer last rites. What's odd about that occurrence is that no one had contacted the clergy about Hunkeller's passing. That's all I have for tonight, folks. Thanks for tuning in to the last Esoteric News Briefs of 2022. Archive members, stick around for a few more short articles. For the rest of you, until next time, remember, stay weird. So, who had zombie spores on their apocalyptic bingo card? Okay, it's not quite that bad, but it is rather fascinating. Hi, Techie Joe here. I work with Ace and Knight and some of the best psychics in West Virginia to create amazing live streams and podcasts for the Psychic Coffee Shop Network. Together, we brew up great content discussing news, events, hot topics, and more, all from a psychic perspective. On the Psychic Coffee Shop, we interview amazing authors in the metaphysical realm. Coffee and Tea combines Asen with Tracy, Dottie, Natalie, or Lady Gwendolyn for the good and the bad of being a psychic. Shameless self-promotion with Dottie the Psychic talks to leading and emerging YouTubers and business owners in our community. Mountain Bears brings you the latest in LGBT news and politics. The Psychic That Plans answers the question of, well, how a psychic plans. Plus, we're live on air. We take your comments and your questions, including psychic advice questions. Check out our amazing programming, book an appointment with top psychics, and find out all the wonderful things we have to offer at pcsbnetwork.com today.